a movement with power but few plans. Today, Tuesday, February 26th, from Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Italy's anti-establishment five-star movement enters parliament with few plans and a strong rejection of old-style Italian politicians. So do you think that these people really can represent me? I mean, they have no idea what it costs to send a child to school. Also, as Italy struggles with its fiscal troubles, so do we. We'll hear how one Italian in America views the sequester drama. And later, a former Soviet republic bans Russian-sounding names. Out of the names that we've specifically heard that will be banned is Dmitry, Maria, Yekaterina. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Anti-establishment, anti-politics as usual, anti-taxes. No, not the Tea Party here in the U.S. We're talking about the big winner in the Italian elections, the Five Star Movement, led by former comedian Beppe Grillo. The movement now holds about 25 percent of the seats in Italy's new parliament, more than any other single party, which could give Grillo and his followers some real weight in deciding who should govern Italy and how. The problem is the movement rejects grand coalitions, and it rejects the program of budget cuts and tax hikes that's kept Italy economically afloat for the past year and a half. That's rattled the markets, and it's a big worry in Europe and beyond. So what is the Five Star Movement all about? Stefano Ambrosi is an activist with the Five Star Movement in Rome. We consider ourselves as a movement being above right wing, left wing, whatever you want to call them. They are a thing of the past. We would like, this is our aim, is to establish a new, a new way of dealing with things. You can say that it's, this is the beginning of a new way of doing politics. Which well, you, involves, s- you say that's yeah. the beginning of the way of a new way of doing politics, but t- 75% of Italy's parliament is still doing politics the old way. That's right, but that's why we, we're not going to ally ourselves with any of the previous parties, let's say the official parties, because very simply we speak different languages. We are the society, we are the people, we are, we are, uh, this is a people's movement. These, these other 75% that you spoke about is, is basically represent just themselves nowadays. Uh, I'm sure that our candidates, once they'll be in the parliament, uh, they will be very willing to, to, to speak about certain issues which are important for a nation and uh, as long as they find, uh, they find them suitable with our, uh, with our ideas. So and, uh, let me ask you the same question again, uh, Mr. Ambrosi. Uh, you've got this power now. Uh, what are you going to do with it? Uh, basically, just to sum it all up, we're going to be uh, an opposition in our parliament, which has never been there for the last 30-odd years. An opposition to what? what? What are you opposed to? Opposition to the government. Right. So, so now your your movement, the Five Star Movement, is in a position to, to do something. So give us an example of what you might do with the issue of austerity. How would you get in line with the Eurozone? We do not believe uh, that austerity is actually a good way of dealing with, a, with an economic crisis. Uh, look at Greece, for instance. I mean, the, 
uh, that is certainly not a way to go. You have to help people. You have to have people having the money to make investments. You have to have people to even, as I said, look at Greece, to buy grocery, for God's sake. I mean, it's it, we're living in a situation where austerity is it's just something of the past. I mean, um, these are these are ambitious uh, plans and ideas, um, and yet your movement can't govern with 25 percent. So are you willing to collaborate with any party or politician? No, no. As, as in alliance, no, no way. We're not going to ally with any, any other uh, political movement, no way. Absolutely not. Why five stars, by the way? Five stars because there are the main five points which are above any political. These are the, the basics. One is internet, free internet connection. Another one is free uh, public water, uh, green energy. There are five, the five main points. So by, by, so by not being willing to collaborate with any party or politician, is the five-star movement essentially saying it's our way or the highway? No, as I said, we're open to to talk and and uh, and see if we can find uh, a way, you know, even uh, a change for the future. The, the, the past is closed; it's finished. It's it's done deal. It's history, and uh, especially in a country like Italy, where basically politics we've had the same faces for thirty odd years. When I started voting, I'm forty seven years old. You know, you could choose almost the same people. The same parties. I mean, these people are old, decrepit. They they have no idea. They they're so they have no idea how much a pint of milk costs. So, do you think that these people really can represent me? I don't think so. They can't represent you, my friend. I mean, they have no idea what 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 it costs to send a child to school. They live in a cocoon. They live. In, they are a caste, as we like to say. They're dead, and they haven't realized it yet. <laughs> Stefano Ambrosi, an activist with the Five Star Movement, speaking with us from Rome. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much. Fiscal stability is on the minds of many Americans as well, as the sequester deadline of this Friday looms. There's been much discussion about how unpleasant the cuts might be, if they come, and how they might slow down the economy here. We were wondering how that sounded to a European whose country has been forced into pretty drastic austerity measures by the international community, including the U.S. Italian journalist Gianni Riotta has lived in the U.S. at different times and is currently teaching at Princeton. So Gianni, as an outsider, someone whose own country is living La Vita Chaotica. Can you make sense of this sequester business here? You know, the first thing I should think about myself, because I've elected to live shuttling between Italy and the United States that seem both on the verge of fiscal chaos. So there there should be something wrong with me. (laughs) I guess that there is something in common, actually, and is that the public opinion, both in Europe and the United States, does not want to renounce to the welfare state and to the entitlements that we had in the uh, post-World War II era, and at the same time doesn't acknowledge that with more taxes... Uh, in this recession, we cannot afford that anymore. And so the contradiction and all this political instability comes out of that, that we still want to live like our parents did, but we don't want to pay the taxes or to do all the sacrifices in order to afford that in the global world. So we're talking about two different types of austerity here, the austerity that the Eurozone thought it was creating and uh, sequestering here in the U.S., For you, what does austerity mean? What does it look like when a government really slashes spending? The first time I heard the the, the word austerity and this English word became 
uh, an household name uh, all over Europe was in 1973. You remember when oil was double and triple after the Kippur War, and people in Europe are saying we should live in austerity. The problem is that we are not used to living in austerity anymore. And our parents, again, and grandparents, they were used to living in austerity because austerity was their uh, everyday life. It's difficult for us to do that. Uh, we should realize that the good old days are gone forever. This is what economists like uh, Rajan or Rogoff call the new normal. These are mm. new normal life, and we should get used to it. Now, your home country, Italy, is one of several in Europe uh, which have been pressured into uh, pretty tough austerity measures, partly by Washington, it should be said. So how does it feel to be here and seeing people and politicians in the U.S. complaining about austerity now? Uh, <laughs> Feels good or no? <laughs> no, yeah, it's funny because, you know, I have two American kids. And uh, and so my son asked me, uh, aren't those people crazy in Italy to vote such a stalemate? And I say, yes, maybe they are. But at the same time, people in Europe ask me, President Obama and Congress fail to find a compromise on fiscal issues. Aren't they crazy? It's always difficult to... Uh, find a political compromise these days. The, the public opinion uh, is very, very, very pugnacious. They want war of words. They don't want compromise. So meanwhile, in your home country of Italy, uh, what hope do you think there is now for pro-austerity reforms to continue, especially with this political gridlock or this uh, grillo lock? Zero. Zero, because as your listeners may be aware uh, we have the two parties pretty much tied, the Berlusconi centre-right and Mr. Bersani centre-left. And uh, there is this third party, the five-stars party led by the former comedian Grillo. They got 25% of the votes. So who's going to ask the public opinion, uh, tighten your belt even more, uh, pay e- even higher taxes, uh, work even longer hours, retire even a few years later when he knows that the other political parties will quick jump and say no and try to make a gain in the, in the polls. I don't see any leader that would be serious enough to propose reforms. Italian journalist Gianni Riotto with The View from Princeton, New Jersey on sequestering and austerity in Italy. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, Italians may be in the grip of political gridlock, but at least they still have the Mediterranean diet. That's good. We Americans heard yesterday about that new study extolling the virtues of the Mediterranean diet. You know, the study that followed thousands of people in Spain. It concluded that a diet rich in olive oil, fish, fresh vegetables, nuts, and wine can cut the chance of heart-related problems, especially strokes, by as much as 30%. As the world's Jerry Haddon reports from Barcelona, people in Spain are just wondering what took us so long to catch on. Mention to a Spaniard, a Mediterranean Spaniard, that the diet here is good for your heart. It's like saying, umbrellas keep you dry. Pepe Bache is the owner of a local Barcelona restaurant called The Room Service. He doesn't exactly say duh, since duh doesn't exist in Spanish, but he just as well could have. It's the most obvious thing in the world, he says. If people want to spend a bunch of money studying our diet, that's just good marketing for us. But everyone already knows our diet is healthy. The study at the University of Barcelona suggests things like olive oil, fresh vegetables, and even wine help protect the heart. But Bache says the real secret is the climate. Generally speaking, he says, our diet is fresher because of the warm weather. It lets you grow crops most of the year and offers variety, he says. 
A manager for the restaurant named Sandra chimes in. For me, she says, every region of the world ought to have their so-called Mediterranean diet. That is, you eat what grows where you live, and you eat it in season. If you want to eat well, she says, you can't expect to eat mangoes in Iceland in the wintertime. Those mangoes would be less nutritious, she reasons, since they'd likely have been cold stored for months before shipping. They'd also be expensive, which brings up a misnomer about Mediterranean food. Eaten along the Mediterranean, it isn't exotic, nor overly expensive. Here at the room service, for example, a salad, main course, dessert, glass of wine, and coffee costs you about 20 bucks, and that's the higher end. A typical lunch menu in Spain is half that, and with the economic crisis, it's only getting cheaper. Cooking for yourself is also cheap. At a green grocer just around the corner, a worker named Ilda is stacking heads of locally grown lettuce and broccoli. She says her clients are rich and poor. Right now, she says, it's the season for shards, cauliflower, broccoli. It's all about 40 cents per pound. Wine, another key ingredient in the healthy Mediterranean diet, is cheap here too, compared to in the U.S., a decent table wine, a red, can cost as little as $3. For something really nice, it's just twice that much. In other words, despite austerity, rising unemployment, and so on, Spaniards can at least feel fortunate about their food. For The World, I'm Cherry Haddon in Barcelona. Still to come, returning missing art when the canvas is concrete on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. As our planet warms up, it's no surprise that ice is melting in the Arctic and the Antarctic. The ice is also disappearing quickly somewhere else on what some call the world's third pole, high mountain glaciers. In the long run, that could mean big trouble for millions of people who depend on glacial runoff for their water. But there's a more immediate threat to some communities, too much water, pooling up in high mountain lakes and threatening to flood cities and towns below. Daniel Grossman has our story from Peru. The hamlet of Carwas in Peru's Cordillera Blanca range could hardly be more picturesque. Birds chirp and vendors hawk their goods at an open-air market in the town, tucked into a fold at the furrowed base of snow-capped Mount Walcan. So it's hard to imagine what happened here one morning in April 2009. That's when a curtain of ice weighing perhaps half a million tons slid off Walcon's shoulder and crashed into a lake below. The collapse raised an 80-foot swell of water, ice, and stone that washed over the lake's banks and roared downhill. Startled farmers below fled in terror. <laughs> Estela Pajuelo was inside her sturdy adobe house that morning. She says her young son called to her from outside to run. She bolted for higher ground just before the wave of debris crushed her home. This is killing me, Pajuela says in Quechua. I'm an indigent person. Why is this happening to me? Why it's happening, says glaciologist Benjamin Morales, 
is global warming. Morales says global warming is melting mountain glaciers all around the world faster and faster. According to one new study, the tropical Andes, including the mountains of Peru, lost between 20 and 45 percent of their volume in the last 40 years. And when the ice retreats, it can create precarious situations. Morales says lakes often form at the base of a receding glacier. They can be held in place at first by natural gravel dikes. But these barriers are fragile, especially when they're disturbed by an ice fall like the one in Carwas. Carwas was actually fortunate. The embankment of its glacial lake had been reinforced with concrete, which limited the size of the flood. One hundred homes were hit, but nobody was killed. Morales says it could have been different. A glacial lake can destroy a city. I spoke with the glaciologist in the steep-walled canyon just below another glacial lake called Palka Cocha. In 1941, a huge ice outcrop slipped off a glacier here and whipped up a wave that breached the lake's bank. It let loose four billion gallons of water into this very canyon, inundating the city of Huaraz below. Five thousand people drowned. That was more than 70 years ago and can't really be blamed on global warming. These kinds of disasters have been happening as long as people have lived near glaciers. But the risks are increasing as glaciers here and elsewhere melt faster. Hello. Cesar Portacarrero recently retired from the government's glaciology office in Huaraz. When he was still on the job, he oversaw the reinforcement of Lake Palcacocha's banks to protect the rebuilt city as further melting ice refilled the lake above. He also designed the dam that kept the avalanche in Carwas from turning deadly. And he says he's now sharing the techniques he helped pioneer here overseas. Es un ejemplo a nivel mundial. Peru is a global example of the fight against the danger of these lakes, Porto Carrero says. We're even applying our technology in the Himalayas, says Porto Carrero. He's now working as an advisor in Nepal, which along with China, Bhutan and Pakistan, is responding to new threats from retreating glaciers and growing glacial lakes. Ironically, Porto Carreros again concerned about his own city here in Peru. The lake above Huaraz has 30 times more water now than when he reinforced its banks in the 1970s. Hay un alto riesgo para 150,000 personas. Porto Carreros says Huaraz's 150,000 people face a big risk. And he says Palcacocha is only one of almost three dozen precarious glacier lakes in the Cordillera Blanca. Glaciologists say these risks will eventually subside, but only after most of the world's mountaintop ice has melted away. In the meantime, experts warn that people living near such glaciers should prepare for more and bigger floods. For The World, I'm Daniel Grossman, Huaraz, Peru.
Daniel's story was produced with help from the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting and from the Whole Systems Foundation. We've got photos and more from the Cordillera Blanca at theworld.org. Our website is also the place to see the latest cartoons spotted by the world's Carol Hills. She scours the web to find out how news stories around the globe are reflected in political cartoons. So, Carol, what's been jumping out at you this week so far? Well, a lot of stuff about the horse meat story. We've got hybrid animal horse cows. We've got a horse laying between two hamburger buns, stuff like that. A lot on Berlusconi and the fact that he's sort of kind of back in the game. And, of course, a lot on the Oscars and the other Oscar story, Oscar Pistorius. Animals and food, always great fodder for cartoons. Has there been anything out of the ordinary this week? Well, something that was really interesting yesterday, an Egyptian cartoonist, Doa Aladl, she happens to be female, which itself is unusual. Um, she did a cartoon about female genital mutilation. It's an uncomfortable cartoon to look at. It shows a woman from the waist down, long, long legs, and between the legs is a man on a ladder with some scissors, and he's looking up at her crotch, and the idea is it's about female genital mutilation. It's the first time I've ever seen the issue of female genital mutilation reflected in a cartoon. What's interesting is that I posted this cartoon, made a little comment about it, and it's received the most views of anything I've ever posted by a long shot. And she's a really daring, interesting cartoonist who does a lot about gender issues in Egypt. Why do you think it got such a response? Well, I think a lot of people who follow me on Twitter and look at the Global Political Cartoons page, they pushed it out there. They were retweeting it, and they were and there were just a lot of looks. It's a powerful cartoon. It makes you uncomfortable, but it succeeds because it makes you uncomfortable. Well, you can see the cartoon about female genital mutilation that caused quite a reaction and a slideshow about Egyptian cartoonist Dua El Adel that Carol produced last year on our Tumblr page. It's at PRITheworldattumblr.com. Carol Hills, thank you. Thanks, Marco. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. A Banksy mural is pulled from auction in Miami that's cause for celebration in the London community where he painted it. You know, people have listened to the, the voices, um, not just here in London, um, but actually people all over the world who said, hang on, you know, this is street art. It was given for free by Banksy to the community, and that's where it should stay. That's ahead on The World. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. In the wake of the Oscar Pistorius murder case, we've heard a lot recently about the high levels of violence in South Africa. But today we're following a big story out of that country that's about crimes committed in neighboring Zimbabwe. The South African government says it's investigating allegations of politically motivated rapes preceding Zimbabwe's 2008 elections. According to the allegations, supporters of President Robert Mugabe's ruling party enacted a systematic campaign of rapes against female opposition supporters. Paula Donovan is the co-director of AIDS Free World. That's an advocacy group that's been documenting accounts from rape victims in Zimbabwe. The campaign was extraordinarily brutal. Women were abducted from their homes at night, and some of them were frog-marched through the streets, 
to base camps where they were detained, sometimes for days at a time, gang raped, and then returned to their communities to send a message to the rest of the community. Have you personally met any of the victims, Paula, and heard from them what they've been through? I have, yes. I accompanied several of the women to a clinic because they wanted to get HIV tests and heard their stories. They were told that they were traitors to Zimbabwe. In some cases, they were told that they were being given the disease, and the women understood that to mean that they were being intentionally infected with HIV as punishment for what they had done. Paula, you're in South Africa, uh, and AIDS Free World called on the South African government to get involved in these cases in neighboring Zimbabwe, and they agreed. Why did you ask a neighboring country to get involved? It's not possible for these crimes to be tried within Zimbabwe for obvious reasons. Some of the perpetrators and orchestrators of the atrocities are sitting in power. Um, The police force has been corrupted. Many people within the judicial system have been corrupted. The International Criminal Court, which is usually a court of last resort, cannot be the court of last resort in Zimbabwe because uh, Zimbabwe is not a party to the Rome Statute that would allow the perpetrators within the country to be brought up on charges. And so we relied on something called universal jurisdiction. Mm. Do, do you think this can really work? I mean, South Africa is a country with its own problems of law and order. That's right. But I think South Africa is demonstrating by the action that it took that in some cases there are crimes that are so atrocious, and uh, certainly mass rape is one of them, that they offend us all. And I believe that South Africa is sending a clear message that this is how they will deal with rape. They are attempting to deal with the sexual violence within their own borders. But when it happens elsewhere in the world, then they are just as aggrieved. In dealing with Zimbabwe, though, you've got the added challenge of President Mugabe, whose government often justifies its rule through extreme nationalism and xenophobia. Isn't there a risk that your campaign might play into this? We fully expect that uh, Robert Mugabe and his ilk will rely on that defense, that this is a neo-colonial instinct, that this is the new imperialism, that our instincts are racist. Zimbabwe actually did sign the treaty that's behind the International Criminal Court. It didn't ratify it, but it did sign it. And in so doing, it recognized that there are indeed crimes against humanity that offend us all and transcend borders. So you can't have it both ways. So there are national elections and a constitutional referendum in Zimbabwe, I think, in the next couple of months. How do you think this campaign coming up from South Africa is going to affect that? This action on the part of South Africa will definitely not go unnoticed by Robert Mugabe and others who have consistently over the years used the same tactic to intimidate voters and to maintain power. And so I think that this will send a very clear message to those perpetrators that this is not something that can be repeated, that we are all on notice and watching. That was Paula Donovan speaking with us from Johannesburg about South Africa's recent decision to open an investigation into a campaign of politically motivated rapes that allegedly occurred in neighboring Zimbabwe. You can find more of our ongoing coverage on issues of violence against women, including a Google Hangout recorded just this morning featuring a discussion of women's safety around the world. Watch the panel conversation at theworld.org, and be sure to add your voice. Just use the hashtag WorldGender. For our GeoQuiz today, we've got our eyes on a former Soviet republic. (music) 
This now independent nation is in the Caucasus region. It was part of the Soviet Union until 1991, and Russia still looms large on its northern border. But the country is looking to diminish Russia's cultural influence. One tool it's using is its Terminology Commission. Its members get to regulate language, including what names parents can give their newborns. So Dmitry and Olga, for example, are out, but Leila and Pasha are in. We'll hear more on that in a few minutes. First, though, try to name this former Soviet republic, which also borders Georgia and Armenia. On his first overseas trip to Europe and the Mideast as Secretary of State, John Kerry has already accomplished something. He placed a call to a leader of the Syrian opposition, and after that conversation, the Syrian opposition dropped its plans to boycott a key meeting coming up in Rome. Still, any hopes for a diplomatic solution to the conflict in Syria remain small, and opposition forces may have a new reason to reject dialogue with the Assad regime and keep on fighting. The New York Times reports today that Saudi Arabia has financed a large purchase of weapons for the Syrian rebels, weapons that are apparently coming from Croatia. Joshua Landis is director of Middle Eastern Studies program at the University of Oklahoma. He also writes the blog Syria Comment. Uh, Joshua, you follow the weapons in the hands of both the rebels and the Syrian government. We've heard about these weapons from Croatia that began arriving uh, in Syrian hands in December. Does this represent a new trend? I think it does represent a new trend. And a number of us bloggers have been getting photos sent to us by opposition members and off of YouTube which show these much more sophisticated weapon systems, anti-tank missiles, various rocket launchers, high-caliber rifles. Now, they don't still make the rebels anywhere near equal to the Syrian army, which is much better armed and has you know, an air force, tanks, and heavy artillery. But you think that uh, th- this large shipment of weapons to the rebels isn't going to make too much of a difference? Look, it is making a difference already. It has boosted the morale of the opposition. We've seen a number of air forces around air fields around Aleppo fall recently to the opposition. And that's allowed the opposition to capture big depots of arms and including some MiG fighters and other uh, training planes. So this has already made a tangible difference in the balance of power. It's just not the man pads that they want. They Mm. want to be able to shoot the Syrian air force out of the sky and eliminate it. That will change the balance of power. And Joshua, what is a man pad? A man pad is a handheld anti-aircraft rocket. We gave them to the Afghans in the 1980s, and it destroyed the Soviet Air Force and helicopters, brought them all down. And that's what led the Afghan rebels, the Mujahideen, to win against the Soviets and the Soviets' withdrawal. The trouble is, it empowered these Mujahideen, and al-Qaeda came out of this. And the CIA and Washington does not want Islamic militias in Syria to get these advanced anti-aircraft missiles because they believe they could be used against Israeli civilian planes or other civilian planes, and that it could be just metastasizing a weapons problem. So they have put the kibosh on the Saudis or anybody else supplying lots of advanced anti-aircraft missiles to the Syrian opposition. And that has been a bloody bone of contention between Western governments and the Syrian opposition. They say, without these things... The Syrian government is going to punish us and to hurt people and create a big refugee problem by destroying us with their air force. We've got to bring the air force down, level the playing field. As to that New York Times report, uh, remind us why Saudi Arabia even cares about Syria. Well, Saudi Arabia lost Iraq and an ally in Iraq, Saddam Hussein, when America overturned them 
cast the Sunnis of Iraq to the bottom of society and catapulted the Shiites to the top. Now, Americans believed at the time that this would make Iraq pro-American and pro-Saudi. It didn't. Iraq became, the Shiite government became pro-Iranian, infuriating Saudi Arabia and making Saudi Arabia feel very vulnerable and that the balance of power had shifted. Syria, once it broke into rebellion in the Arab Spring, a Sunni population, 70% of Syrians are Sunni Arabs. The government is dominated and the security force are dominated by Alawites, 12% of the population who are these heterodox Shiites and allied with Iran. So if Saudi Arabia could win back Syria and turn Syria into a Sunni government that would be allied with Saudi Arabia, they would in part make up for the loss of Iraq. Hence this whole proxy war. So uh, does Iran continue to arm the Syrian government? Oh, absolutely. Iran is clearly backing the Syrians. They have a lot to lose if Syria goes down because America's, you know, wants to overturn the Iranian regime as well and has real sanctions on it. And so I think Iran looks at this as a domino theory that if Syria goes down, Iran will become the focus of international tension next. And it's much better to be fighting a proxy war in Syria than it is to be fending off any kind of direct action to do with Iran. So John Kerry, the new Secretary of State, he managed to coax the Syrian opposition to Rome for this crucial meeting. Are you hopeful, Joshua, that uh, Secretary Kerry is going to have an effect on what's happening in Syria? He's promised that he's not going to let the Syrian opposition dangle in the wind, as he said it. And he's going to do more for them. How much more is going to be in terms of weapons and how much in just aid? Unclear. But there are a lot of things the Americans can do, and they can loosen up some of these prescriptions against advanced weapons. They can tell European governments, you can supply weapons to Saudis and others. And probably these advanced weapons we're seeing getting into Syria in greater numbers has gotten a nod and a, a wink from Washington. So I think people are working hand in glove now. And so Washington can turn a blind eye to more and advanced weapons getting to the opposition. You know, there are new reports out every day about the level of casualties uh, in Syria. You followed Syria for years, Joshua. You have family on your wife's side there. What have you had to carry with you emotionally about this civil war for the past two years? Well, every Syrian and everybody who's attached to Syria has seen a country they love completely fall apart and the human costs are exploding. And for America and the American government particularly, there's anxiety that neighboring governments, whether Lebanon or Jordan and in Iraq, were seeing upticks in violence and that this could spill over into the neighborhood. Joshua Landis, director of the Center of Middle Eastern Studies program at the University of Oklahoma. He also blogs at Syria Comment. Joshua, thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. To answer our geo-quiz now, we're going to turn to the BBC's Leila Najafova. Leila, you're a journalist from the country we asked about, a Eurasian country where there's something called a terminology commission that regulates language. First of all, what country are we talking about? Uh, we're talking about Azerbaijan, which is situated between Russia and Iran. And it also shares a border with Turkey, Armenia, and Georgia. Right. Azerbaijan, that is the answer to the geo-quiz today, listeners. Now, what does this terminology commission do there? Is it kind of a language police? It is a language police of sorts. I mean, they're basically a regulatory body for the language because the um, Azerbaijani language, I mean, it suffered a lot of setbacks during so many decades of Soviet rule. And it was only developed in 2012, so it's quite a recent commission. I gather the Terminology Commission also has a focus on people's names. Yeah, which we didn't realize until very recently. They decided there are too many 
Russian-sounding names in Azeri or foreign names. So they've said that they're going to ban these names and also double or triple names. What do you mean double or triple names? So in Azeri, they have names which are kind of two names joined together. Hussein and Ara are two separate names, but some people call their child Hussein Ara or Najaf and Gulu. Some people call their son Najaf Gulu. So... For compound names, they're saying that the parents of the children should basically choose, (laughs) make up their minds between one or the other. For foreign-sounding names, they're saying that not every parent in Azerbaijan wants to marry their daughter off to a boy called Dmitri. Dmitri, I hear, is out. Vladimir is out. Is that correct? Out of the names that we've specifically heard that will be banned is Dmitri, Maria, Ekaterina, mostly female names, but Dmitri was the one male name that they came out with. It's not going to be a list of banned names. It's going to be a list of allowed names, which supposedly there are already 80,000 names on that list. What so about... anything outside of that list will be disallowed. So given that Azerbaijan is authoritarian, some would even say it's a dictatorship, is there a penalty for violating the decrees made by the Terminology Commission? Not as yet, but I mean, the government also came up with new penalties for people who take part in unsanctioned rallies, new penalties for random things like advertising and things like that. So you never know what the next law could be. But so far, it's just you can't name your child this name. And that's that. So if you're a Dimitri and you go to uh, an unsanctioned rally, you got a lot of problems on your hand. That's right. This does seem rather intolerant. Um, you're from Baku, Leila. How do you feel about it? Well, it's very strange because Azerbaijan always prided itself in being a very diverse, multicultural country. I mean, even since the early 1900s. But as an Azeri, it's disappointing to hear such a new regulation come to law when already so many political freedom laws have been passed, like new penalties for people who take part in freedom of assembly and so on. So it's surprising. But I mean, considering everything else that's happened in recent years, maybe not that surprising. (laughs) What about your name, Layla? Are you uh, worried that it might pop up on a list? I'm quite, I, mean, I think I'm one of the lucky ones. It, as Layla is a very popular name in Azerbaijan, it, especially in the last maybe 10 years. It's grown so much in popularity. The president's daughter's name is Layla, so I assume that's one of the reasons. Layla Najafova with the BBC's Azeri Service. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Coming up, one of Mali's biggest pop stars now has her own brand of car, the Um Sang. You know, that kind of brand recognition is hard to come by, but in the world of graffiti, one name, one guy has the market cornered. That's British guerrilla street artist Banksy. Just this past weekend, a mural created by Banksy was supposed to be auctioned off in Miami. The piece, which is stenciled on a wall, shows a young boy sewing British flags with an antique sewing machine. It had vanished earlier this month from the side of a North London bargain shop. Then the artwork appeared on the website of that Miami auction house. It was expected to sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars, but at the last minute, the mural was withdrawn from sale. That was good news for residents of the North London neighborhood who want Banksy's work returned to their community. Alan Strickland is a local politician. We're a determined bunch and a determined community, as I think people have seen. And I think, you know, the impact we've managed to have um, with the auction house, um, you know, asking the sellers to withdraw this uh, piece from the sale, um, you know, has been a real success. And I I hope that's because, you know, people have listened to the the voices, um, not just here in London, um, but actually people all over the world who said, hang on, you know, this is street art. It was given for free by Banksy to the community, and that's where it should stay. 
It's not clear if the mural will be returned to the site of that bargain shop in London. As expected, the secretive Banksy isn't commenting publicly on the story, but he may have left a clue on his website. Someone wrote a comment asking, What do you think about the auction houses selling street art? The reply was a quote from French modernist Henri Matisse. It reads, I was very embarrassed when my canvases began to fetch high prices. I saw myself condemned to a future of painting nothing but masterpieces. But do you know that tonight the streets are Here's a story now about a woman who has recorded a number of masterpieces. Umu Sangare is from Mali, and lately Mali's musicians have had plenty to say about the troubles in their country. Some of them recently got together to record a song for peace. Umu Sangare was part of that. That's not surprising. The Malian singer is also an activist, but she has her hands in many things, and not just music. As Michael May reports, she's the picture of a modern music mogul in Africa. Umu Sangare must be the only pop star in the world to have a car named after her. It's a sedan called the Umsong, available only in Mali. In this commercial, Sangare's music plays as the camera lovingly pans the modest interior of the streamlined sedan. Then the car's slogan appears, the African diva of the road. If there's such a thing as a down-to-earth diva, that's Umu Sangare. I went to see her in Providence, Rhode Island, where she was headlining the annual Africa Niaga Festival. Sangare was staying at the modest home of the festival organizer, a friend from Mali. But, in true diva style, she was three hours late for the interview. Luckily, her band was waiting, too, and Angoni player Mamadou Sidibe warmed up the living room. Finally, Sangare arrived, radiant in a turquoise silk dress and sporting thick braids. Sangare told me her family didn't own a car when she grew up. <laughs> no, no, no. Never. <laughs> her parents separated when she was three, and her mother, also a professional singer, struggled to raise Umu and her five siblings. Like most Malian families, a car was not in the budget. Bon, Sangare says it wasn't a big problem. She would end up with her own car earlier than the average American teenager. Her mother taught her to sing, and by 13, Sangare was performing at weddings and ceremonies. At 15, a patron bought her a motorcycle, and she was on her way. In 1990, Sangare released her first cassette, Musulu. She was 21 years old. It wasn't long before Umu's hypnotic voice was flowing out of cars, buses, and shops across Mali. She now sells out shows around the world. But Sangare told me that having a successful music career 
doesn't make her feel secure. C'est bien, mais ça n'a pas de, de retraite. On n'a pas de retraite. She says musicians in Mali don't have pensions, and she's seen too many popular African musicians end up destitute at the end of their lives. So Sangare decided to diversify. Sangare's first venture was Hotel Wasulu in Bamako, Mali. She employs 60 people there. That idea came to her after the government of Mali called for more hotel space to accommodate visitors for the African Cup of Nations soccer tournament in 2002. Now there's even Umu Sangare rice. She says she doesn't make money off it, but hopes it will drive sales of domestic rice over the imported stuff. The idea for her car, the Umsong, was less altruistic. Je lisais beaucoup de journaux. Et quand je lisais des journaux, un jour j'ai vu... She says she was in France, uh, flipping through a magazine, when she saw a new Chinese-made car selling for $8,000. That's what a used one costs in Mali. The used cars that Mali gets from Europe tend to be older, more polluting. So Sangre saw a chance to help her country and make some money. She went to China to strike a deal directly with the car company, GoNow. She says she met with an executive named Zhao Bin. As it happened, he was a big fan, and he told her so. I know you long, long, long time. Sangre says he was the one who had the idea to name the car after her, the Um Song. Sangre buys the cars directly from GoNow and then markets them in Mali. She makes it clear she's not just lending her name to a Chinese car. She's in control of the business. I don't work for China. I work for me. <laughs> Sangre says the car business has been pretty good, but not great. Malians don't have a lot of money for cars, especially now that the country is in turmoil. And by Malian standards, these are luxury cars. Still, she's managed to lease a fleet of umsongs to a taxi company. How does it feel to see people driving around Bamako with a car with your name on it? Just <laughs> yeah. Proud, she says. And with that, she excused herself. The auto executive had an audience waiting at a festival on the other side of town. For the world, I'm Michael May, Providence, Rhode Island. And if you want to see what the Umsong taxi looks like inside and out, you can watch the official video from the Go Now Car Company. It's at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at ritaallen.org by the Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International